How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with They keep trying to get answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is when the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy now I've been I've been I've been excited lately about the podcast because man we've had some great guests on here lately and actually I'm recording this on a Sunday and tomorrow I have another great interview lined up and I got some things to say today so as I check back in with the listeners with my people who are listening in I've been stoked things have been good I think I've been doing this for maybe six or seven months and you know i'm just i'm so much of this is it gives me an excuse to connect with people that i would love to connect with and you are let in on the conversation but a lot of it is this gives me a platform and it gives me a medium to connect with people who i respect and who i admire it allows us to initiate a relationship it allows us to have a great conversation we include you it's just been this great thing and for those of you who have listened in, maybe for some of you who follow me on social media, especially Instagram, then you would know that I am in the process of getting my first book published. A friend of mine named Cam, Cam Greggs, you can look him up. I think it's Cam Greggs Film on Instagram. But he just gave me what's essentially the final draft of the trailer for my book. You know, I had this idea for my book proposal to already have a trailer done for it that I set up, that I did everything for, that no one you know, outside, no one at a publishing house helped me with. I already initiated and did my own trailer and I wanted to make the trailer for my book as cinematic as possible. So another thing I'm excited about that, uh, more details on that book coming soon. So here's, you know, things, Things are happening and I'm excited and I'm so grateful for all of the people listening in, the people who keep listening in, the people who tell your friends about it, the people who post about it on their Instagram stories. I'm just so grateful to have people journeying along with me personally and with the Church Needs Therapy. So here's what I wanted to do today. I'm actually going to read a couple sections from this one chapter from my book and the chapter from the book is called Social Ladders vicarious value and career choices. And it's a few stories on reflect and reflections on Christian culture, on Christian celebrity culture, on the Christian publishing industry, on what some people call the Christian industrial complex. So in light of, you know, me writing, me doing this podcast more, I, I thought, man, if the church needs therapy, we definitely need to talk about some of these vicarious value, why people are still climbing these 
stat these ladders of status and just how prevalent that is when you get into publishing and when you get into doing things transculturally beyond your own context and you start broadening out a little bit. So I'm not going to read this entire chapter. I'm going to read sections. I'm going to reflect more. And it's just a little interesting insight on some things. And as we take the church to therapy, I think there's some issues that we need to talk about when it comes to these things. So let me begin by saying this. Freedom has always been one of the most important words for my life and one of the central pursuits of my life. The most powerful dimension of freedom I dreamt of and longed for in my own life was personal and spiritual. Right? Being a, I'll just say this, being a cisgender, straight, middle-class, white male in the United States of America, I grew up and still live with the kind of privilege that doesn't always require me or rarely requires me to think about economic and political and social freedom in the same way people of color in the same way indigenous people where we live in Hawaii, the same way native Hawaiian people have been forced to think about. So I just want to begin by acknowledging that. But for me at about 17 or 18 in the middle of a deep existential crisis and this sort of ground shaking spiritual opening into what felt like nothingness, I could feel the power of meaningless lurking, but I could also feel the real possibilities of freedom calling me as well, right? Freedom meant I could just be and be okay. Freedom meant I would feel the exact same about who I was regardless of whether people applauded me or not, right? Freedom meant that the peace I carried would not be contingent upon any external form, or at least at 17 and 18, that's how I saw it, right? See, at that point, I was successful, I got the attention I wanted, and I was treated as one of those special people because of the things I could do in sports and music, but I also realized that I was not free. Right, a little side note, Thomas Merton has this great quote where he says, true freedom begins not by telling slaves to be free, but rather by telling those who think they're free that they're actually slaves. Right, he is not talking about that in a political sense, he's talking about that in the spiritual sense. And I definitely got in tune with that. You know, I was successful. I had those things, but I knew I wasn't free. But with all of that said, freedom meant more than just the personal sense. I wanted to be freed from an entire culture that sees people's value based on what they can do for them socially, where they can get them professionally, and a culture that almost demands people who want to be successful to sometimes treat other people as a means to an end. Are you, do you feel me on that one? Right? I grew up using people, manipulating people, climbing the social ladder, and buying into the unspoken rule of that system get attention and achieve status by any means necessary. See, when I was young, I didn't want to just be free spiritually by knowing who I was. I wanted to be free socially so I could see others for who they were. Right? Or at least at eight, at least at 18 as I look back, that's how I saw it. Right? So there's this framing of this desire for freedom. Now, in 2012, right before I moved back to Hawaii to take our first daring step to start Imagine and to begin this new life, 
I spent the last four months in Orange County, California, shadowing a few of my friends and peers that were pastors. Right? I figured since I was never on staff at a church before, I should probably get a little bit of experience before I started a church. Right? I always joke with people and I would say, what does a pastor do on a Wednesday afternoon? Because I had no idea. And, you know, I, I wanted the experience, not enough to normalize elements of the church culture and system I wanted nothing to do with, but at least enough to know what a meeting was actually like. And one of the guys who I shadowed and spent some time with was my friend Dwight. Now, at this point, Dwight was a little bit older than me. He, we were a part of a close learning community at Fuller Theological Seminary that focused on studying black theology. And Dwight was a pastor and still is of this beautiful, vibrant, and predominantly black church in Los Angeles. And during this season of shadowing, we had made plans for me to come and be with his church on a Sunday, right? To worship with them, to sit on some meetings. And really it was just for me to get a feel for what, what is a day in his life on a Sunday feel like? I had no idea. So I was excited to be around leaders who I respected and kind of to get a glimpse into the inner happenings of churches, right? Two days before that particular Sunday, another friend of mine told me he was going to be in San Diego all day shooting a video with one of the biggest names in the Christian publishing industry at the time, right? This person not only had this massive following, but they were also a personal hero of mine. So when I got that call, I immediately was stoked. So when the invitation was extended, what's interesting was I could immediately sense my ego start to justify why it would be okay to cancel on my friend Dwight and to go to San Diego for this exciting opportunity, right? My ego was saying things like, well, it's not like I can't visit Dwight, Dwight's church on another day. I mean, Dwight wouldn't mind. He's a friend. It's no big deal. Even though if I did cancel, I probably wouldn't tell him the exact reason, right? This could be a once in a lifetime opportunity to meet this person and hang out with them. But despite the volume of that voice of that internal dialogue, I decided to stick to my original plans, spend the day with Dwight and his community, and I ended up denying the invitation to hang out with one of my writing heroes, right? And Dwight, by the way, is the man. Dwight's, I don't know his exact title, but he's like a dean at Fuller Theological Seminary now. Dwight is the man. He's a great friend to me. Here's the thing when we think about this industry. my Even at, I was probably 27 or 28 at the time, my ego knew that spending time with this author was a better strategy for climbing the social ladder to the top of the Christian industrial complex. But my true self knew that this ladder was just the Christian version of the same thing. I wanted to be liberated from needing to climb since I was 17. Right? There's this quote from this, one of the, to me, one of the great living mystics, Cynthia Bourgeau, where she's, she's talking about Jesus, she says, he embraced everyone and everything, but took nothing to himself for his own profit. People were not manipulated. They did not become fodder for his spiritual ambitions or his animal instincts, right? To me, it seems that in order to follow the Jesus who refused to use or manipulate others for his own agenda, we must also refuse to use or manipulate people for ours, See, my ego knew that spending the day 
in San Diego would be better for a career as one of those special Christian figures who writes books and speaks on stages. Feel free to throw up in your mouth after you heard that. But my true self knew that spending the day in Los Angeles was another step forward in integrity and alignment with the way of Jesus. Which here's the thing, let's be honest. The whole integrity and alignment with the way of Jesus, that's not really the kind of thing the Christian industrial complex is most concerned about. (laughs) Which is irony, if you know that word. My ego knew that developing a relationship with someone who's already an established public figure with status is good for quote-unquote business. But my true self knew that nothing is more powerful and valuable than having an actual friend who knows you, sees you, and cares about you. See, my ego and your ego, my ego was willing to sacrifice an actual gesture of love and relationship from a friend for a chance to be near people who the culture, is funny enough, a culture I wanted nothing to do with, who the culture deems as important or having a certain status. But my true self knew that to do that would be perpetuating insecure elements of the Christian culture that I think we're all supposed to be transcending. See, here's the fascinating thing at 27 or whatever age I was. I saw that the same ladders that were available for me to climb as a 17-year-old fighting to elevate my status in the streets or with music were still here in front of me as a 28-year-old getting ready to begin the adventure of starting a new church. It was just now they happened to be propped up against a massive building that said Jesus on the front. Before I move on to this idea of vicarious value, the people who want to write, who want to publish, who want to quote unquote get their name out there, who want their voices to be heard, why? There's nothing wrong with that. But I will say it is a dangerous and a weird thing in a Christian culture, a Christian culture, right? One that is, you know, allegedly centered in Christ that each person consciously or unconsciously will be faced with those decisions that I just described. And my concern is most people unconsciously just continue to perpetuate the same manipulative using, you know, climbing the ladder, using other people for their status kind of a culture that I think one that's centered on Christ should be transcending and moving on from. You know, for whatever reasons, the degree of self-awareness and self-control I had at my age allowed me to be aware of how my ego was contracting and what it was saying at that point. But I don't think that is most people's concern when they're trying to climb to the top of the ladder of the Christian industrial complex. It's just a little insider thing. It's a weird thing to be around and to see. And to be honest, I've really stayed away from in large part in my life on purpose. So, I don't know if the church needs therapy. I think sometimes we need to think a little more about what it means to climb ladders of status, why we do it, what it takes to get there, and whether or not we're losing our souls along the way. So, let's talk a little bit about vicarious value, which I may have talked about a little bit in this podcast before. Vicarious value... It's, vicarious value has its own economy, 
right? This is an important one. Vicarious value is one of the most powerful, invisible forces in our influencer culture in general and in the Christian industrial complex specifically. See, vicarious value is one of the most socially acceptable forms of status sinking and one of the saddest and most ridiculous dynamics in our church culture. Right, so which raises the question, what is vicarious value? And this is what I would say to that. Vicarious value is the belief that when we are connected with someone of perceived social status and value, it increases our value, right? So their value is vicariously transferred to us. There's this book I remember reading in grad school by Gary Latterman called Sacred Matters. I read in this Theology and Culture class with Barry Taylor. And Latterman has this quote, and he actually was on Joe Rogan's podcast not too long ago, which is interesting. But he has this quote in there where he says, it is a power, when he talks about celebrity and social value, he says, it is a power that is not shared equally among all societal members. And those who do not have it will search for ways to get access to it. This is why we care about social status. This is why name dropping is a thing. And this is why getting tagged in photos with people who have a bigger following than you on Instagram actually means something to people, right? Vicarious value, this is why we quietly bend conversations in order to insert moments where we shared or conversations we had with people who occupy a higher social status than us. Vicarious value means that we believe and live as if the status, value, and social elevation of someone else is able to transfer onto us if we're close to or connected with them. See, here's the thing about vicarious value. Nobody talks about everybody does it. Well, not everybody, but everybody does it. Right? Even though, of course, despite the fact that Jesus' brother writes, you know, writes in the book of James, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. And then goes on to describe the evil of showing special treatment and attention to the rich, well-dressed, and those with higher social status. And even in that book, he finishes by saying, quote, But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, I see a lot of climbing of social ladders in the Christian industrial complex. And sometimes I see it's like an almost comical, these almost comical, ridiculous, so obvious exchanges of vicarious value taking place with Christian celebrities and the actual celebrities they want to be like. I mean, I almost feel bad for them because what they're, the vicarious value, once you have the eyes to see it, is so obvious. It's like hilarious and horrible at the same time. Right, years ago, I remember seeing this high-profile pastor saying he was going to spend the week highlighting people on his Instagram who are special and who have come to or are a part of his church. And then I see him posting pictures of like actors and TV personalities and famous musicians who he has relationships with or he took pictures with his church at his church. I just remember thinking years ago, I'm like, that is so weird, right? especially because this guy is older. Like, what is the driving force for a pastor to intentionally draw attention to the fact 
that you personally know famous people or that celebrities attend your church, right? I think the answer is obvious to everyone who's not caught up in it. See, there is this invisible economy of vicarious value that pop Christianity is held captive by, right? I love that phrase, this invisible economy of vicarious value. Think about it like this. When a pastor consistently name drops celebrities in their teachings or public appearances, what I see at work is the invisible economy of vicarious value. When I see pastors intentionally, and to be honest, quite obviously, drawing attention to and highlighting their connections and relationships with celebrities through social media, what I see at work is the invisible economy of vicarious value. And when I see Christian leaders putting a spotlight on the presence of celebrities in their worship gatherings or circuses, I meant conferences, that's a joke. What I see at work is the invisible economy of vicarious value. See, now, here's the thing. The people who are trading in and capitalizing on this economy of vicarious value, they don't just do it for personal gain and brand elevation. They do so for the advancement of their churches and their creative endeavors as well, right? And in their defense, the majority of relational transactions that take place within this economy happen at an unconscious level which means the core intentions of these behaviors are not always recognizable to the person making them because we know it's all for the glory of God, right? There's a little wink, wink right there. I mean, this is why if you were to ask pastors and leaders why they bring into the public light the nature of their relationships with celebrities, you would more than likely hear some answer about how it brings attention to and, fo and focus on Jesus, right? Of course, I mean, they can leverage their relationships for their own agenda and advancement, but the entire relationship from their perspective would exist under the banner of glorifying God. And what I love is this ironic statement of wanting to make Jesus famous. The, this theologian Roger Olson wrote, Americans are obsessed with celebrities. Evangelical Americans are obsessed with celebrities who convert to evangelical Christianity by being born again. Now, here's the thing. I would argue this statement by Olson, really, only makes sense because of this invisible economy of vicarious value. Why else would we be obsessed with it? The internal logic of vicarious value says when we are connected with someone of perceived social status and value, it increases our value. But the fascinating dynamic is that the perceived value does not only transfer to an individual through the personal connection, it can also transfer to a church by the institutional connection, right? It's interesting. So if it's like, wow, Chris Pratt is, Chris Pratt is so cool and he's a Christian, isn't that awesome? Well, I'm like, well, why would that be awesome? He's cool, which means he has more social value. And now he's a Christian. So what does that make being a Christian cooler or have more social value because a celebrity has it? And what's weird, this is like a little side note as I think about it. I feel like people actually do that with Jesus. It's like this celebrity, this person who has a higher social status likes Jesus, and we want to draw attention to that. And somehow beneath the surface, what we're saying is 
somehow their social status even elevates the status of Jesus. They would never say that, but sometimes it feels like that weird, very twisted dynamic is actually at work in some of that weird kind of celebrity stuff. It's like if this celebrity who has a high social status and perceived value talks about me or our church, it brings more credibility and value to all of the connected parties. Because if it wasn't believed that the establishing of that connection between a celebrity and a pastor of the church brought some kind of value, why would it ever be highlighted unless we thought it brought some sort of value like that? Because here's the thing before I move on. To those with eyes to see this invisible economy of vicarious value, it is not hard to spot. And it's always silly when you see it. To the people who don't have the eyes, it doesn't even exist. But once you have the eyes to see it, it's everywhere and it's so obvious and it's also just silly and ridiculous. Specifically, if a person is a self-identified Christian who says Christ is the one who brings the fullness of value to you, those quote unquote people of status don't bring value to you or your thing or especially to Jesus, it's this weird inverting of that relational value kind of thing. Are you with me so far? You know, these are things that fascinate me. These are things I think about. This is in large part a culture I'm not highly participatory in, but I'm also complicit because I'm a Christian in the United States of America and it's around me. And like I said in that first story, everybody's, walking through this invisible atmosphere, especially for those people who think they're special, people who want to write a book like myself, you inevitably find yourself in this world more and more. And it's just stuff that I find really fascinating and interesting, especially for religious people, and even more specifically for Christians. So I'm going to do one more thought. Are you with me so far? We talked about ladders and climbing them, vicarious value, and I just want to mention one shorter thing about career choices. Okay, since I started, Christine and I, my wife and I moved back to Hawaii in January of 2013 to start Imagine, which is our church. And since that happened, I've been to one big Christian conference the whole time, right? Just one. And I remember there's, there's actually this kind of yearly big Christian conference out here. And sometimes the day before the conference, they'll bring a speaker to do an all-day thing. And I did go to that. It was an all-day, quote-unquote, breakout session because Richard Rohr was doing it like six years ago. And it was funny. There wasn't even that many people there because I don't even think that many people are aware of Richard Rohr. It's just this mind-blowing thing. But there was this one big Christian conference here in Hawaii and... I was probably 28. When I first moved here, I was asked to be on this panel there. It was the only time I've ever done that at like a big Christian conference. Right? It was this panel discussion on dating. And in the midst of the lights and the music and the fog machines and the Jesus junk and the guest speakers in the green rooms and all of the palpable neurotic energy, what I remember most is this one conversation I had backstage with 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 uh, with a, I think she was the host that year. So this one, when she was just high energy, happy to be there, hilarious, definitely seemed like she knew the drill when it came to these conferences. 
And I never heard of her before, but what I discovered was she was already an established writer and speaker who since then has blown up and really expanded her brand and reach like exponentially since then. And while we were backstage talking, I started sharing about the heart of our church. Imagine how these conferences weren't really my vibe and about authenticity and about my life as a pastor. And, you know, there was a resonance there. I could tell she was genuinely drawn in and interested in what I was saying. We kept talking. And even though there was more to the exchange, I do vividly remember her telling me how deep down she wanted to be able to do some of the things I was doing or say some of the things I was saying, but how she couldn't because if she did, she would lose her audience. And now based on where her career has gone the past seven or eight years, she has definitely not lost her audience. And in fact, it has grown into this massive thing. See, she may have not realized it at the time, but she was pretty clear that her audience was a higher priority than her integrity. And I don't say that judging her and her value at all as a human being. I'm just talking about the practical decisions she was making and the values that shaped them consciously or unconsciously. And I remember after that conversation, I'm like, I wasn't surprised, I wasn't let down, and I wasn't angry. What I felt was more of this deep internal sigh that was like, oh, oh yeah, like that's what we're doing here, huh? Like it wasn't truth, integrity, and authenticity. It was success, career outcomes, and building an audience. And of course, here's the thing, it would all be done in the name of Jesus. The one who paid no attention to the status quo, the one who lived with infinite integrity, the one who embodied such countercultural authenticity that he lost not only an audience, but actually got killed by them. All of it would be done in the name of that Jesus, right? It was the, in the name of the one who always chose authenticity over an audience that this Christian cultural figure told me she was unwilling to lose her audience as a result of her authenticity just these tragic and comedic, right? Cornel West has this phrase of tragic comic sense of life where life has this both tragic and sort of comedic sense to it. And that is what I call a tragic and comedic form of irony when I say that. You know, it's just stuff I've been thinking about lately. And I've thought about for a long time. And I think it's important when we talk about taking the church to therapy, especially for people who you know, look at writers and Christian celebrities and authors. And it's, it's a fascinating thing to think a lot of the people who are the most equipped to talk about some of the most predominant issues in the church today don't have the platform to do it because while other people were climbing ladders in order to get to a point where they had the platform to do it, all the other people were simply living it and breathing it and embodying it and doing it and loving and sacrificing and like, incarnating all of it and yet the people who have the platforms oftentimes are the people who were the ones who were the quickest to get up the ladder regardless of what it meant along the way you know social ladders vicarious value and these career choices are three of the main pillars that hold up the kind of culture that exists in the christian 
industrial complex that at 18 I already saw through and longed to be liberated from. See, even at 18, I thought freedom meant we were supposed to move beyond having eyes that can see who in the room has the potential to elevate our status and being able to control the body that is being drawn to them as a result. I, I assumed everyone, especially the most public followers of Jesus, saw that the dehumanizing mode of treating others as a means to an end was one of the first things that we're supposed to say no to when we decide to say yes to Jesus. I, I, at 18, I imagined a future where following Jesus meant we already have received the conclusion from God about who we are, which means we're the first ones who should be able to see through that invisible economy of vicarious value. Because here's the thing, I'm, I'll end with this. Sometimes while we're climbing the ladder to the top, we are unable to hear the words of Jesus who has his feet firmly planted on the ground.